We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. So if you'd like to take a copy of your of God's Word and open it there. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. John chapter 17. 1940. The United States ship line proposed the building of a, of a new ship uh, called the SS United States. Uh, with a nearly $80 million price sticker, it was said to be the largest, it was going to be the largest ship ever created in America and the fastest in the world. Upon hearing about the project, our government invested $50 million into the building of this ship. Uh, its purpose was straightforward. They said they wanted it to be the, a troop carrier able to transport up to 10,000 troops at a time at the fastest speed in history into battle all around the world. 1952, the SS United States did set sail. It did break records for transatlantic travel, some of which still stand today, and it successfully did carry thousands of people across the globe in record fashion. But it did so not as a troop carrier, but instead as a luxury liner catering to wealthy patrons. Its last customers boarded the ship 1969, and since 1996, the SS United States has been docked at Pier 82 on the Delaware River in Philadelphia as a tourist attraction where you can go visit and learn the success of its success and notoriety. People are still wondering today, what are we going to do with the SS United States? And yet, in the face of its popularity and so-called success, the SS United States never actually accomplished the purpose for which it was designed. This morning, we come to the end of our what we've been calling our, our DNA series. And really what we've been doing is focusing our attention on what it means to be a disciple. We're not a very flashy, complicated church. We try to be pretty simplistic with it. So we want to make disciples. Therefore, what is a disciple? And we've Define a disciple in three primary relationships. We define our relationship with God from John chapter 4 as a devoted worshiper. Last week we considered from John chapter 13 our relationship to one another as loving servants. This morning our goal is to really tackle our third relationship with the world in terms of what we're calling a spirit-filled witness. So why... Did I open with the story of the SS United States this morning? Because I, I believe it depicts a, a dangerous reality in terms of our personal discipleship and our corporate identity as a church. If I'm honest, I find in my own heart uh, the desire to, to downplay, to minimize, and to overlook the the nature and the responsibility of my relationship to the world as a disciple of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be part of the church of Jesus Christ, which is not a luxury liner, but a wartime vessel. 
meant to advance God's kingdom in this world. I want to show us that from John chapter 17 this morning. Now John chapter 17 is an intensely personal section of Scripture. It's actually a prayer. It's a prayer of our Lord Jesus to His Father in Heaven on behalf of us. Every line demands our attention. And Jesus prays His request on behalf of us really culminates, I think, in a call. He says, just as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. Before we read our text this morning, I want to give you a a main idea. And here it is. As His disciples, God sanctifies us in order to send us into the world to bear witness to His Son. We're going to talk about what that word sanctifies means. But as His disciples, God sanctifies us in order to send us into the world to bear witness to His Son. Now, John 17 forms somewhat, I believe, of a climax in this section. As I mentioned, 13, chapters 13 through 17 as a, an intimate personal section of Scripture. Jesus' public ministry really ends in chapter 12. There's no more crowds, no more healings, no more miracles. From chapter 13 on, it's just Jesus and His disciples. He prepares them for the cross and the life that they're going to share together after He's gone. What we have here in John 17, as I mentioned, is a prayer. It's a prayer from our Lord on behalf of His disciples and us this morning. We actually read the request of Jesus on behalf of His Father. I want to read it to you. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. I have manifested Your name to the people whom You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. Now they know that everything that You have given Me is from You. For I have given them the words that You gave Me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from You, and they have believed that You sent Me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. All are Mine, and Yours are Mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to You. Holy Father, keep them in Your name, which You have given Me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given them. I have guarded them, 
And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 13. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. that They also may be sanctified in truth. Father, we, we pause. We pause under a, I don't know, Lord. I feel like almost... Almost like Moses this morning, needing to take my shoes off. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. Lord, we we hear our, our Savior and His prayer to you on our behalf. Lord, let us receive it and obey it this morning. Let us see what you've done for us. Understand what it means to be identified with the Son. Just as He was sent, as you sent Him. Lord, you sent us. At the, at the core of who we are as a church, at the core of who we are as disciples, there must be this idea of being sent. Help us this morning, Lord, to embrace this life. A life that you've given us in your Son. Guard our time, guard our hearts. Help me to be clear. Help us to honor this time, the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to focus this morning on verses 13 through 19. And I'm going to highlight, by so doing, I want to highlight what I'm going to say is three aspects of a spirit-filled witness I think we're to embrace as a body. And the first is this in verse 13. Spirit-filled witness is full of joy, yet hated by the world. Spirit-filled witness is one who is full of joy, but hated by the world. Now we know that the immediate point of application here is the disciples. But put your eyes on verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The application here falls in our laps this morning as well. Jesus is praying to the Father for the disciples, yes, but for you and for me and for us as a church. Those who have believed. And he prays for joy in verse 13. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy. It must define a disciple. 
Jesus is not talking about being funny or comedic here. He's talking about joy. And notice this defined as my joy, verse 13 says. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. These things here is the answer to where joy is found. These things refers, yes, to chapter 17, but it also includes all of, I think, Jesus' instructions that began back in verse 13. Jesus' phrase, my joy, unmistakably refers us back to chapter 15, where he states in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus' joy, and in turn our joy, is the result of us abiding in the Father's love. And we abide because Jesus abides. We obey because Jesus obeyed. Therefore, we have joy because His joy is fulfilled in us. So Jesus prays that the joy He accomplished through His obedient life and death will be ours. What does that mean? That means Christian joy is no theory. Christian joy is not circumstantial. Christian joy is a fixed reality. It's a state of being produced by the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. It stems from or is rooted in certainty in the gospel. Certainty in God's work of salvation in your life. Christian joy is a fixed reality. We all know circumstances change. But God never does. It's important we grasp this reality because Jesus makes clear that as His disciples we will be Hated. Not a luxury liner. A wartime vessel. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear this because there's a lot of language of these terms that floats around in our day. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a, a fully inclusive yet unashamedly exclusive message. What do I mean? It's inclusive in that it's offered to all people in all generations everywhere. The gospel is not a Jewish message. It's not a Western message and it's certainly not an American message. It's a message for all nations. It's a message for all peoples, all ethnicities, all Races, all generations. It's completely inclusive. But yet it's unashamedly exclusive. There's only one way of salvation. Jesus just told the disciples three chapters earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to be made right with a holy God, and it's through Jesus Christ. And this statement is not made in arrogance at all. It's made in truth. And I, I was even involved in a conversation about two weeks ago, talking about multiple ways to God. And the conversation, I feel, never gets down to the real issue. 
For no other faith system, no other religion provides a solution to the problem of this world. Our sin and separation for a holy God. It's not that it's saying Christianity is the the better solution. Christianity is the only solution to that problem. Salvation is found in Christ alone because He is the only answer to the real issue of sin and separation from God. What's wrong with the world? Something's wrong with the world. We don't act in accordance to what we want. We turn the news on and we see. We see in our neighbors, we see in our families, something's wrong with the world. The Bible calls that sin. And I think if we're honest, we recognize as we brush our teeth and look at ourselves in the mirror that the problem that's out there in the world is in my heart. What is that problem? The Bible calls it sin. And no other faith system answers the question of sin, has a solution for sin. That God would send His Son to take upon our sin. That the sinless Son of God would die in our place, bearing our sin and shame and our punishment upon Himself, and offering us eternal life and forgiveness of sin. What I'm saying is, you can't compare other religions with Christianity. It's a different paradigm altogether. It's completely inclusive, but wholeheartedly exclusive in the person and work of Christ. And the world hates this. Our world cheerleads. Maybe that's too strong a word. The The world posits the notion of tolerance. But we know that's can't be, right? Tolerance goes as far as the person who's making the statement. Once a viewpoint is raised which disagrees with someone's notion of tolerance, tolerance is gone. Listen, don't be scared of this. Truth, by definition, excludes. You believe that truth. Maybe not in terms of Christianity, but you believe that truth. Blue is blue. Right? I don't get to say yellow is blue. Truth, by definition, excludes. We should never be ashamed of this. So as we think about it as disciples, being liked and accepted by all is impossible if we live obedient lives for Christ. To live an effective life for Jesus means we will not be liked and accepted by all. We have to swallow that reality. We don't want to swallow that reality, but we have to. And I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm not talking about being arrogant. The reality is if we humbly, lovingly stand for the truth of the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, we will have people who don't like us. They will hate us. You know why? Because they hated Jesus. They killed Him because of it. However, we must be joyful. In the midst of it, a joyful, a people full of joy because of what God has done for us in Christ, which is an unshakable reality. So the first truth is this. A spirit-filled witness is full of joy. Yes, but will be hated by the world. But secondly, a spirit-filled witness remains distinct, 
yet engaged with the world. Verses 15 through 16. Jesus further prays for his disciples in light of this hatred. But notice what he prays. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Disciples' attitude towards the world must never be one of withdrawal. Jesus does not pray that we should be taken out, away. Withdrawal from the world is always, if we're honest, is always a temptation for the religious. And we all know this. Consider the Pharisees. To be a Pharisee was to be a, a separatist. Separate from. Their goal was to escape the contaminations of a fallen world, they said. How about the, the rise of monasticism in church history with the practice of monks renouncing all of so-called worldly pursuits, which is a good thing. Renouncing all of so-called worldly pursuits and living for God, but they did it by completely isolating themselves from the world and non-believers. I think as disciples, we, we must be careful we don't become modern-day monks. And I'm... This is me putting my cards on the table. It's very, very easy for us to arrange our schedules so that we spend all our time with Christians solely. We attend Bible studies with believers and church services which consist mostly of Christians. We send our kids to Christian schools and participate in Christian sports programs, none of which are bad and actually be really good things we should honor and be excited about. But we must be careful Because we may just isolate ourselves into a Christian subculture where we have little to no contact with unbelievers. Disciples of Jesus Christ, as spiritual witnesses, we need to ask ourselves honestly if we have functionally removed ourselves from the world. Because Jesus prayed, we must not be taken out of the world, but protected from the evil one. A disciple cannot, must not, will not isolate from a fallen world. To do so is to forfeit our calling of being a disciple. But neither does a disciple assimilate with the world. Our engagement with the world must never lead us to embrace the world. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. But then he makes this clear. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Christians are never to be chameleons. We're never to blend in. We must engage, but we must remain distinct. The Bible calls us strangers and aliens in a foreign land. Our citizenship is in heaven. We must not disengage from the world into our our huddles. We equally cannot assimilate into it. We must remain distinct. We must be different. We must be marked a marked out people. Jesus prays we will be a radical force of joy. Wholly distinct from the world, yet seriously engaged with it. So much so, certain people will be in fact, certain people will in fact hate us. What does that look like? Well, we could go to the book of Acts for one place and read it. I want to be honest here because, you know, the danger of preaching a text is always that maybe it's me standing on the side of having it right and teaching you, which is totally not the concept of preaching. I'm sitting under the Word just like you, and this rubs me in every way that it rubs you. 
So I'm asking myself, what are, what are the two dangers in my heart at least? And I think you would, in relation to engaging the world. And I think the first danger is self-righteousness. It's legalism. Let's be honest, the, the, there's a danger in all of our hearts. The longer we walk with Jesus to see ourselves better than those people. We create those people in our head. Those people. We forget that the only thing which separates us from the world, which brought us out of darkness, is God's grace alone in Christ. We must guard our hearts against creating those people who we deem below the grace of God. But there's a second danger here. And I think it's the fear of man. I think our struggle oftentimes simply stems from improper fear. If we're honest. Far too often we fear man over God. We fear the opinions, the possible rejection, or the unwanted confrontation more than we fear God Himself. We desperately want people to like us. Accept us, affirm us way too much. But whenever man is that big, God is small. If you're reading along with us through our Bible reading plan in 1 Samuel, we were confronted with this reality this week through the contrasting narrative of, uh, of David and Saul. Though Saul was everything the people wanted, right? The text says that he was taller, stronger, more handsome than all men. His kingship was short-lived. And it was short-lived because he feared the wrong voice. Saul deliberately and repeatedly chose to obey the voice of man over God. Instead of heeding the voice of the Lord and waiting for Samuel to arrive and make the sacrifice before entering battle, the people got impatient. He heeded their voice. And he offered the sacrifice himself. The Lord commanded him to make a full destruction of the Amalekites, even their livestock. What happened? The people said, hey man, these sheep are pretty good. They're pretty healthy. Just leave us a few. Sadly, Saul obeyed the voice of man instead of God again. 1 Samuel 15, 24, we read these words of a confession from Saul himself. He says, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. But then we have David, right? Though he's the rightful king who has shown nothing but honor and loyalty to Saul, David finds himself fleeing for his life as Saul's trying to kill him. David's an innocent man. And at one point, by God's providence, David finds himself within arm's length of Saul behind him. He doesn't even know it. He could easily end Saul's life. If we're honest, we're rooting in the text. Go for it. Somebody do it. The people all around him are counseling him. Kill him. He's a wicked man. This will end this whole struggle for you. You're the king. Stop being on the run. Wipe him out. David won't do it. He tells Saul why in chapter 24, verse 10 of 1 Samuel. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. David obeyed his God instead of man. Like here's the principle. And it's 
We can apply it here in evangelism, but you can apply it to every area of your Christian life. We always obey the voice we fear the most. Every one of us, we obey the voice we fear the most. And when I say fear, I'm talking about awe and reverence. Our obedience, our engagement is bound up with fear, with what we awe, what we find reverence in. You and I obey the voice we fear the most. And here's the reality. For me, at least. Oftentimes I spend way too much energy trying to be liked and accepted by people. I don't want to be different. I don't want to stand out. We're often scared to engage this world with the gospel because it, the world might just reject us. But Jesus said it will. But if our desire is to be liked and accepted by everyone, God will always remain small in our life because we will be seeking the affirmation of man over God. We will live our lives by the voice of man rather than the voice of God. So the question is, I think this, at least for me, maybe for you, you can write it down. Whose voice do you fear the most? Whose voice more dictates the actions of your life? The applause, the opinions of man or the voice of God? Spirit-filled witness is someone who has been captivated by the grace of God. Someone who understands himself as being redeemed out of the world, pulled out of darkness and into light. A spirit-filled witness remains distinct from the world, no doubt. Our calling is to be holy, for I am holy. But the same grace which captivated us also compels us to engage the world we live in. We obey the voice of the Lord because we fear Him over everyone else. He is awesome, full of wonder, majestic in power. A spiritual witness remains distinct yet engaged with the world. Lastly, third distinction, a spiritual witness is sanctified yet sent. Sanctified yet sent. Let me read 17 through 19 here again. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, the word sanctify comes from the, the holiness word group. It's to be holy. To be holy is to be other. Therefore, people and things which are, are set apart for God in the Bible are called holy. Both the temple and the priest of the Old Testament were considered holy and set apart, sanctified for God and His purposes in the world. So consider it. It's an amazing thing that we see here. Jesus prays that His disciples, you and me, would be sanctified, set apart. And that we would be sanctified, as He says, in truth. Your word is truth. The means by which we are sanctified is the truth. The Word of God. None of us will be sanctified 
None of us can be set apart for the Lord's work without learning to think God's thoughts and live in conformity to who He is. And that will not happen apart from the Word of God. Jesus prays that you would be set apart, sanctified by the Word. But there's a purpose behind us being sanctified. We are set apart to be sent. We're sanctified in order to be sent. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is the one the Father set apart, the one who He sanctified as His very own. And Jesus is the one set, sent into the world to save sinners. As verse, we see in verse 19, Jesus actually sanctified Himself, set Himself apart to be and do exactly what the Father assigned Him to do. Sanctification. Living out this idea we've been set apart, we've been sanctified, growing in Christ. I want to see the connection here. Sanctification and mission and being sent, they're always connected in the Bible. God calls for a purpose. God sets us apart in order to send us. He made Israel. He called Israel to be holy for I am holy so that they would be a light to the nations. God calls no one. He does not sin. If you're a Christian this morning, you have been sent. And not only have you been sent, You've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness for Jesus. Acts 1.8, following the resurrection, Jesus' instructions regarding how we are sent into the world. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you're called, if you're a believer this morning, you've been set apart. And if you've been set apart, sanctified, you've been sent. And if you have been sent, you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness for the gospel in this world. God sanctifies in order to sin. And He sends no one. He sends no one He does not empower. I want to think about something for a minute. Because when we think about the, the attributes of God, we we think of, which is correct, we typically think of His, his holiness, His sovereignty, His wisdom, His justice, His love, etc. All true. But rarely do we think of God's missionary nature. The Bible teaches us that God is a missionary God, a sending God. In John's Gospel alone, the word send or sent is used nearly 60 times referring to the Father sending Jesus or Jesus being sent. It is a repeated refrain over and over again. Jesus wants you to know who He is in His person as He is the Son who has been sent from the Father. In verse 18 of our text, Jesus is doing much more than drawing a vague parallel between His mission and ours. What we see here is Jesus actually defining our mission by rooting it in the Father's very nature. His missionary nature. One author says, Missions is not primarily an activity of the church. 
But it's an attribute of God. This roots our, our evangelism, our, our mission as the church, and something much deeper than a duty. Like I, I know, I, I feel that tension too, right? We start to think about sharing our faith and evangelism, it, we, we go right to duty. It's a duty we have to do for God. But our, our, this reality is rooted in something much deeper than a duty. It's rooted in God Himself. It's a privilege that we get to cooperate with God in His mission in the world. God is a missionary God. That is who He is. Don't disconnect. For God so loved the world that He gave, that He sent His Son into the world. That whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. And just as the Father sent me into the world, there I send you. This is who He is, and He is chosen by His grace to use His church to advance His mission in the world. Here's an important book, but an important quote from a book. Beyond Mission by Tim Dearborn. Here's the quote. It is not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but the God of mission who has a church in the world. The church's involvement in missions is its privileged participation in the actions of the triune God. Do we think about that enough? Do we think enough of the the privilege that it is to participate in God's great plan of redemption? That not only would He save us, not only would He save a sinner like me, but He would send a sinner like me to testify to His great name. We, we sing, we're going to sing a song in just a minute where we ask the question, who are we that He would save us? Who are we that God would send us? It's that awe, it's that wonder, it's that amazement which must inform our lives as spirit-filled witnesses. Look, as we think about, as we come to this third mark, a spirit-filled witness, I think we we come to a high point, or maybe we could say the culmination of discipleship, right? We don't begin with our witness to the world. We begin with our worship of God. We begin with, as the text says, as the quote I read says, that God not only He's a missionary God who has a church. So we go from worshiping God to thinking about our relationship to one another as loving servants, as humility characterizing our life together. The gospel should inform the way we interact with one another. And by that, we now are sent into the world. Put your eyes on verse 20 of John 17. It's a verse I prayed a little bit. Everybody there? Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me so that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's a reality to our lives, what God has done for us, but in us. That culminates in his sending of us. We, we want to grow. I want to grow in the Hill Church into maturity. And that's growing into Christ, the Bible says, right? To grow up into mature manhood, Paul tells us in Ephesians. That's what discipleship is. Maturity is not just being a Christian for a long time. It's not just knowing the Word of God. It's not just learning certain doctrinal positions or holding specific theological convictions. Maturity requires us embodying the character of the God we worship. We learn from Jesus to live like Jesus. Maturity is becoming more and more like the God we serve. And what we learn here is that our God is a ascending God. The heartbeat of the triune God is the sending of His Son. So the heartbeat of what we do together must be the same. We must embrace our call as a sent church. We are sent people. God desires us to advance His kingdom. God calls us, saved us, sanctifies us, empowers us, and sends us. So there's a stewardship question there, I think. What do we do with that? How do we live our lives? Everything that He's done, He's called us, He's saved us, He's sanctified us, He's empowered us, He's sent us. Therefore, how do we live in light of that? Our aim is to be spirit-filled witnesses for Christ. So, because we close our, our DNA series, I, I want to be clear that these three marks, a devoted worshiper, a spirit-filled witness, a devoted worshiper, a loving servant, a spirit-filled witness. These aren't options we get to choose. Jesus embodied each of these marks. He is the epitome of a devoted worshiper. Everything He did was a full life response to the character and nature of His Father. He was a loving servant. He sacrificed His very life so we might experience forgiveness and grace. And He was a spirit-filled witness. As the Son of God, full of the Spirit of God, He bore witness to the Gospel by enacting it in His life, death, and resurrection. He's the epitome of what it means to be a, a worshiper, a servant, and a witness. So as we try to even highlight through our even our logo, we understand the Christian life in terms of three relationships. With God, with one another, with the world. So our our full statement might be something like this. As a Hill Church, as the Hill Church, we define a disciple as a worshiper growing in their devotion to Christ, a servant committed to the body of Christ, and a witness living on mission for Christ. We want to mature into the image of Christ in each of three areas. So our aim is to really create that culture of people who are worshiper, servants, witnesses. I want to close today and we'll close out in prayer, really just thinking through these three relationships, specifically thinking about 
What does it mean to be a spirit-filled witness? Let's do this. Maybe as we're closing out, maybe thoughts come to mind about people. You want to engage. Relational avenues maybe you haven't taken advantage of. Maybe opportunities for you to serve more as a witness. Maybe coworkers, neighbors. That's what comes to my heart. Let's take a moment and pause before I pray and write those down. Take a moment, reflect. Are areas where you can be a more faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're not here this morning, if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. Let me be direct with you. God sent His Son to die for the sin that separates you from Him. He's ascending God. His love is such that He sent His Son to live the life you should have lived. Never sinning, never turning away from the Father. The only one who didn't deserve death and punishment for sin bore it and took it on our behalf. He carried our sin and shame to the cross. And He nailed it there. And He died and He rose again. As our substitute, as our Savior, if we accept Him as Lord and Savior, if we repent and place faith in Him. That's how much God loves you. You need to ask the question, who else loves you like that? How are you going to respond to that this morning? If you have questions about that, find me. The service is over. And let's chat. Church, let's think through how we can be a better steward of all that God's done in our life and the Spirit-filled witness. Let's pause. Father, who... Are we that you would save us? Nothing, Lord, we know that. Sinners deserving of your judgment. By your grace and full expression of your love and kindness towards us, you, you saved us. Lord, we, we say thank You. Lord, we want to live for You. and I pray in my heart, I pray for my brothers and sisters today that we would recapture a, a proper sense of fear this morning of who You are. Not a fear to run from You. A fear to run to You. To stand in awe and reverence of who You are. I want to obey You. That Your voice would be the loudest and Your voice would be the one that dictates our lives. And Lord, we would see the privilege that it is, not only that you saved us, but that you sent us. That in the, in the moment that we get to share the truth of who you are with someone, we get to continue on and carry out the beautiful riches of John 3.16. Extend your love. And Lord, we know we can't save people. You save people. But you send us to proclaim the goodness and grace that has changed our life, that has changed our life. Lord, give me a heart that is more compelled to see the world that way. 
We thank you for the life we share in you. We thank you for the riches of the gospel that saved us. Lord, help us to see the the true sending missionary nature of who you are. That we would want to embody you by living for you in this world and proclaiming you. Lord, I pray for anyone in this this morning who doesn't know you. Lord, draw them to yourself as I know you will. Lord, let them ask that question of their own heart. Who has loved me this way? The answer is no one. Draw them to yourself, Lord, if they might come to respond in repentance and faith this morning. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. We say, all these things we know come through our Savior and your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.